five, four, three, two, one. Do you think that was enough time since Ryan left us? I think we're live. Here we are. Hope so. uh, hey, everybody. Welcome to another Dispatch Live. I'm Steve Hayes, joined tonight by Declan Garvey, who is not only the editor of the Morning Dispatch, but do you know Dispatch Trivia here actually came up with the format for the Morning Dispatch? There's a story we might ask you about a little bit later. Um, and very happy to have David Cottrell, Republican consultant extraordinary, knowing, knower of all things, um, <laughs> here to tell us um, what we should be looking for. The, the cliche, we mentioned it in, in the morning dispatch this morning, is that nothing really matters in politics until after Labor Day. And then you've got this two-month two dash to the finish. David, you've, you've run a lot of races. And I don't mean to put a spotlight on your experience here. I mean, really your experience, not your age. Um, how true is that? Is that is that a real thing? I mean, certainly it's the case that some things matter before Labor Day. Some races are over before Labor Day. But yeah. how much is it the case that these last two months that we're about to 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 cover extensively shape, you know, determine the winners and losers? Yeah, it's not as true as it used to be. There, there are dynamics at play, you know, all year long up through the primaries, how much money gets raised after the primary. You see what Fetterman's been able to do to Dr. Oz in the last couple of months, kind of sort of set him up there to be in pretty good shape. But, you know, there's no doubt that most of what happens that really matters here, that you know, moving numbers, moving the ball, the spending that's taking place, it happens primarily after Labor Day in most races. Now, there's some races that have unlimited money and people are on the air, you know, all summer long. But uh, yeah, after Labor Day is when, you know, these races really start to settle in and, and kind of set in concrete a little bit. Things will move, but not, you know, not as much once we get, you know, two more, two, three more weeks in, you'll see these dynamics really kind of, you know, unless something big happens, unless you've got a war, unless... I mean, you know, look what, look what we've had with Trump the last couple of weeks really sort of changed some dynamics. So, you know, you know, never say never, but, um, you know, these races become more about the candidates and their spending and their message than some of the other outside dynamics. But uh, again, you know, we're living in unusual times and, um, you, you know, this Mar-a-Lago, uh, uh, you know, search is, is playing a role in the narrative right now. Um, the Roe decision, huge role in the narrative right now, as we've you know heard a lot about and hear a lot about on this podcast or on this uh, on this uh, live stream. So, yeah, things uh, things will become, I think, more now about the candidates because you're going to see you know a couple billion dollars of TV ads that'll really you know flood the airwaves in all these states and all these congressional districts, and um, it becomes more about the candidate than it than it does the outside distractions. Well, let me let me push you on a couple of those things that you just mentioned. Um, they're top of mind because they are they are, they have shaped the dynamics that we're we're talking about, and we're likely to see between now and November eighth. Um, how you've heard us talking about the the road decision? I mean, I think it's pretty clear that 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 uh, or the Dobbs decision, pretty clear that it's that there's been a shift. Mm -hmm. My question to you is how significant a shift has it been, um, who's shifting, and what would you do if you're advising a Republican in a competitive, let's say, purple state, 
Senate race, um, who's having to talk about these, a candidate who is pro-life and is having to talk about these things. Um, your, your general thoughts on that. So general thoughts, and I do a lot of debate prep and training for, for candidates. I'm doing it right now for a couple of my candidates that are in pretty close districts. Um, look, you know, uh, this issue uh, plays really hard with the people who are very extreme on both sides. What you have to do is you have to, in a debate, you have to push back uh, on the Democratic position, which is abortion on demand. Um, you have to paint them as extreme. And then you have to talk about other things that you can talk about, whether it's, uh, I've got a couple of candidates who talk about over-the-counter birth control and access to birth control um, You know, for women. Uh, you you got to find other things that you can kind of pivot and move to. Um, you never really want to have the whole fight over you know, no exceptions versus, uh, versus partial birth abortion. I mean, it's like, it, that's 60% of the country isn't going to really listen to that because they don't identify with that there. Everybody's got a, a more nuanced position. The quicker you can get that out there and then pivot back to something else like, like, uh, over the counter birth control, which is a pretty popular issue for, for Republicans to kind of, you know, talk about how to address some of these things. Um, I think that's the way you do it. It's look, it's, it's going to cut against us in suburbs, uh, with women who are kind of coming back, um, you know, generally Republican upscale, you know, women who, you know, don't, don't like this issue, but look, also all the polling that I see on this, you know, you got about 25% on one side that are absolutists on, you know, pro choice and they, uh, you, you know, they don't want a single restriction. And you got about 25% of people, mostly Republicans, who are absolutely pro-life and they will vote on this and they care about this. The rest of the country is somewhere in the middle. And so you, you got to be able to find ways to talk to them that shows that you're reasonable and, and you know, that you're not just going to be a crusader. That's That's been my advice to candidates that aren't in deep red districts. But there has been a shift, oh, right? Go ahead, Declan. Yeah. There's a shift in energy among Democrats. That's true. Uh, we saw an answer from um, Christine Drazen. She's the Republican running in Oregon, uh, Oregon, the gubernatorial race. I think it's one of the first times in 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 recent years that that seat is really in play for Republicans. Um, potentially, she gave a really interesting answer to this in a debate. Asked about, you know, she's a pro-life um, Christian Republican, uh, and was asked what her position is on abortion. And she basically gave the answer that I'm going to follow whatever the law of Oregon states. The Oregon Democratic legislature has made the law what it is. I personally disagree with it, but I'm not going to exceed my power and try and implement restrictions that that I'm not legally able to do. Um, Is that kind of a, you know, voluntarily letting people know that, you know, you personally believe X, Y, Z, but if you're in office, if you're elected, um, you know, you don't actually have the authority to enact some of these things that you personally believe. Mm-hmm. How do you see that as potentially threading the needle uh, with answers yeah, I like think, that? Good question. I, I actually think that's a great answer because you're running to represent the people. Um, and in Oregon in particular, uh, you know, that's the law. And that's, I think, where the voters will be. So I think that's a good answer. You can't get away with that answer in a lot of other places. You know, in in more red states and more red districts, that's a that's a difficult answer to give because then you're going to take the backlash from the base. I'm I'm guessing that she's not going to take much backlash from the base on that. There might be a few people who are disappointed in that answer, but um, 
it will, that's a good answer to give in places like Oregon, where there's a pretty strong political consensus. Uh, Frankly, it might have been a good answer in Kansas, too. We saw what they did with their vote over the summer. Um, But, you you know, for me, it's, it's just easier to kind of give your answer, sound reasonable, pivot away, start talking about the economy. Because that's where, you know, Biden's net minus 20 or net minus what? I think I wrote it down. Minus 46 on the economy. So (laughs) that's what you, you know, that's where you have to go. Uh, You got to attach yourself to the wrong track if you're a Republican. The way you do that is talking about inflation, the economy, gas prices, that sort of thing. And if we're talking, spending a lot of time talking about abortion, we're not going to be successful. That's just the bottom line. So we're, we're continuing to welcome people in. We had some uh, technical difficulties. <clears throat> Substack, uh, our platform partner on newsletters and website, um, they are down. So we sent out the YouTube link again. We see people joining us. I will just remind people that we're talking here with Declan Garvey, um, Morning Dispatch editor, and David Cottrell, Republican strategist. And as you can see, waiting with great anticipation, Sarah is going to join us uh, in a little bit uh, to talk about Mar-a-Lago. And then we're going to be joined by Adam O'Neill, who's our new executive editor at The Dispatch. Um, picking up from, from that last point, Declan, a question for you. One of the things that has been really striking to me over the past week or 10 days has been this out in the open fighting between Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott, the Florida senator who runs the National Republican Senatorial Committee in charge of getting Republicans elected uh, to the Senate this cycle. McConnell has made, um, he's, he's, he's been very clear that he's unhappy with the quality of candidates that Republicans are running in the Senate. Um, and I think he has reason to be unhappy. They're not great candidates, some of them. Um, Rick Scott wrote an uh, op-ed for the Washington Examiner last week saying, that's all Washington talk. This is who the people want. We should listen to the people. Let's not grouse. We have to be united. Um, and then over the weekend, there was a, a report by Shane Goldemacher of the New York Times about the spending at the National Republican Senatorial Committee. I think they have $23 million cash on hand right now, having raised, I believe, about $181 million. That's not a lot of cash on hand and about half of what Democrats have. Have you ever seen this kind of open um, sort of preliminary finger pointing the way that we're seeing with Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott? And, and do you have any sense of where Republican senators are in this back and forth? You know, I I think if you talk to Republican senators uh, behind the scenes, as as uh, you know, you often do, as as we've talked about on various dispatch podcasts for for years now. You know, they're saying different things in private than they're they're saying in public. Um, you know, in public, the in public, even Mitch McConnell, you know, is out campaigning with Dr. Oz, campaigning or uh, his leadership pack is uh, spending tens of millions of dollars supporting Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, J.D. Vance in Ohio, uh, Republicans that, you know, in a perfect world, they wouldn't be dropping $28 million in Ohio so that Republicans can spend that money in Colorado or in Nevada or these states that are a little bit more uh, dicey for them, theoretically, but but because Vance is 
um, at least according to polling that is public. And, and from what I've heard, private polling reflects this as well, is running behind where a generic Republican should be theoretically in Ohio. Um, you know, in, in, in terms of kind of the, the knife fighting between Scott and McConnell, you know, politics is always about a blame game. Uh, if, if you can, you know, see the writing on the wall ahead of time, it's in, in, it's in your best interest to kind of make sure that you are not the one left holding the bag. And, uh, you know, it's not just Scott and McConnell. Trump has been, uh, you know, posting various things, also pinning it on McConnell because, you know, they were Trump's chosen candidates uh, in, in almost all of these Senate races that ended up with the Republican nomination. So if they, you know, strike out or, or don't retake the Senate when, you know, people have been promising a red wave for months on end now, um, you know, that's going to reflect poorly on, on the people whose candidates they were. Uh, so that's, I think, why you see McConnell trying to get out ahead of that, um, going out publicly saying, you know, I don't think we have some of the strongest candidates here or, you know, questioning the candidate quality. Um, it, it was pretty funny. Somebody, uh, you know, senators were on uh, recess the past month. So we had reporters haven't been able to ask as many questions of them as we'd like. Rick Scott finally got asked about his op-ed from a couple of weeks ago uh, today and, you know, gave some wishy-washy answer about how, no, he was, of course, not targeting McConnell with with his comments. He was talking about anonymous Republican insiders who were uh, leaking to to the media about their concerns. Um, and as as someone who spoke to uh, anonymous Republican advisors a couple of weeks ago for a story about their concerns, you know, I, I think that they are genuinely held. I think that there are, um, you know, not only that fundraising issue and and kind of having to spend money in races where you don't typically have to spend money, but um, it, in a year where uh, Biden's approval is where it is, David, you you rattled off some of the numbers there about the economic uh, approval rating in particular. Republicans should not be having you know be neck and neck in Georgia, be neck and neck in Ohio, um, and you know it. it that reflects kind of a real some you know crisis of, of judgment somewhere along the lines and McConnell could have gotten involved earlier that we can talk a little bit more about whether that would have been effective or not um but I think that we're seeing a lot of blame shifting right now and uh it's it's only going to get worse I think if if these trends continue um if the polling improves and and things end up okay for Republicans, this fight will kind of dissipate, at least publicly. I think it will go back to private, but um, but we could definitely see this get worse if the polling continues on current trends. David, let me pin you down on on something a little bit here. Um, the how, how much of what we're seeing play out in the press, this fighting, infighting among Republicans, spilling out in, in, in the public, is a function of the fact that Republican, you know, that Mitch McConnell thinks that these are bad candidates and Rick Scott needs to defend them because they're his candidates. How much of it is the fact that the economy's gotten a little better? Um, gas prices are down $2 from where they were a couple months ago. People don't feel it as much today as they did uh, maybe in, in June or July. As somebody who's driving across the country at the time, I can tell you I don't feel it as much as I did a couple months ago. Um, and then how much is it uh, attributable to the, the, to the post-Dobbs environment and just broader environmental challenges that took what looked to be a really good year, potentially for Republicans across the board, and have made it more competitive? Or is the press just overstating all this? Well, they're not overstating it. And certainly they're, you know, I, I would put a lot more faith in the Rick Scott message if we hadn't lived through 2010 and 2012. 
and kind of knew, you know, sort of what happens when you, you know, nominate the Christine O'Donnells and, and those kind of candidates that just couldn't win statewide when we had better. Christine O'Donnell was the Republican nominated in (laughs) Delaware who famously put out an ad declaring that she was not in fact a witch, which was something that had been circulating at the time. It's not a, not an ad. I would have have written. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, so look, I mean, you know, McConnell and Stephen law and the, and the team over there have, have proven that they can win. They've proven that they can put it over the top when we've got a good year this should have been a good year. I think what you're hearing is the frustration of, yeah, some some rumblings. You know, the 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 Dobbs decision is an enthusiasm builder for Democrats. Um, okay, somebody called me. Uh, so the Dobbs decision was <laughs> was it uh, an enthusiasm builder for Democrats? You got a couple of candidates who got through primaries that I think McConnell would have much preferred to have somebody else. But look, I'm going to push back overall on the narrative that this is, um, you know, this is starting to slip away from Republicans. I, I think the fundamentals are still there for Republicans to have a very good year. We are going to win the House. I, I'm, I'm certain of it. You know, Democrats had a 3.8 point advantage in the generic ballot in 2020. Joe Biden wins by 7 million votes and Republicans still pick up 14 seats. Uh, I, I think, you know, redistricting is going to deliver us at least the majority. And I, and I think, you know, wrong track is 70%. Most of Joe Biden's fave on fave on the issues that people care about, immigration, crime, uh, the economy, inflation is net minus 20. His number's still barely cracking 40. So I think, you know, with, with, a, with a good campaign by some of these candidates, they're going to get, uh, we're going to get more over the top than people think. Look, the Senate, I, I, you know, Brian Kemp wins by five or six or seven points. Herschel Walker's in a pretty close race right now. That might pull him over the top right there. There are clearly going to be a few, you know, uh, uh, Voters, they're gonna they're not gonna be Kemp Warnock, but I I don't know if it'll be enough. So, I I listened to Jonah's favorite podcast this morning, The Daily, uh, with Michael Barbaro and Ested Wesley, and and it, it was it was about thirty minutes of liberal wish casting on you know how it's not a red wave anymore; it might even be a blue wave. And um, you know I, I've been through too many of these with the fundamentals that we have. Um, I, I think Republicans are gonna do pretty well in this election. And, you know, so we get the Georgia seat, maybe we don't get Pennsylvania, we end up, you know, standing pat at 50-50. But, you know, only one state has, you know, one state has to tip over uh, beyond that. And and I think, you know, it could happen. Um, I'm kind of with McConnell. I wish we had a better candidate. I wish we had McCormick in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not sure about Arizona. That looks pretty rough. But Carrie Lake running for governor of Arizona, that's about a one or two point race, you know, and she's a very Trumpy candidate, as you guys know. Um, so, you know, that's people scary, are frustrated. That's a that's scary that that's a <clears throat> one or two point race. If I can be blunt about it, she's a conspiracy theorist. She's crazy. She, yeah, I think there's about a three percent undecided in that race. It's unbelievable. Like nobody is undecided in that race. It's wild. Yeah, David, uh, if if you look at kind of. Um, these races you see, you mentioned McConnell didn't get his preferred candidate in in every single primary here, uh, almost in almost in all of them. I've done some reporting on this, talked to people on some of the losing campaigns in the in those Republican primaries who 
said, oh, it's it's a shame that McConnell isn't happy with the outcome here. He had, you know, those tens of millions of dollars. We could have used some of that uh, to push back against a master's or a Oz or Vance or what have you. Um, you know, the McConnell world has they're they're kind of mum on this. They talk a little bit about, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing to have millions of McConnell money coming in to support you in a Republican primary. Uh, yeah. that kind of brands you as the establishment, the insider, what have you. Right. Was right. there more that McConnell could do to get his preferred candidates through these primaries and, and have a better chance in the general election? Well, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure you had a better option in Ohio, for example, that you could have gotten there. Um, what about you know, Dolan, I think, who had that, who was the sort of non-Trumpy, the single non-Trumpy candidate who had that, yeah. what appeared to be a surge at the end? No, is that is that it, it, more it, wish casting? It, it, it was more wish casting. It was never going to be enough of a surge. It was a little bit of a and surge. Portland but I don't had think already come out in favor of Timken there too. <clears throat> yeah, which right. which definitely blunted some of the momentum. Yeah, I, I, I don't. You know, look, maybe he could have helped McCormick more, but that wasn't a function of spending. Um, you know, and tr look, Trump has a big voice in these primaries. He proved that this year. Georgia turned out to be an outlier. Um, he was pretty successful everywhere else. I'm, one of one of my races is the third district in Iowa. Um, he ended up not making an endorsement there, and we got a we got the best candidate through the primary. And I think we'll flip that seat. Um, so you know, my preference is always to go with a candidate that you know candidate strength as opposed to these sort of overarching narratives about the establishment versus MAGA versus you know whatever. Um, but you, you know, I'm not sure that there was enough he could have done. Um, and 2014 played out really well for, for us because that was, we learned the lessons in 2010 and 12, and it was kind of the first time through that playbook. And you didn't have, you didn't have the same sort of anti-establishment, uh, you know, narrative in the Republican party that we have today. And so you could just go candidate by candidate and really help them run stronger campaigns and get behind them with good ads from the, from the leadership pack. And, and that made the difference. Uh, the environment's different now with, you know, with Trump in the picture and able to make endorsements and Peter Thiel's money coming in, um, you know, 10 million bucks, a lot of money in an Arizona Senate primary, uh, 15, I guess it was. So, uh, dries up in the general. Solved it. it dries up. And that's, you know, obviously that's McConnell's frustration. The other thing we haven't talked about is, you know, the Mar-a-Lago, uh, search gave Trump an opportunity to really up his fundraising. So all the low dollar money is now going to Trump. He's not spending it on these races that I can tell. And so you've got a, you've got a flight of small dollar, you know, donations that should be coming in to, you know, to the, to the big committees and to these candidates state by state. And it's not, it's going to Trump. And that's, um, that's a problem. Um, you know, there's only there's finite resources available for campaigns, except unless you're a Democrat and you've got act blue, which just keeps money on lost causes, you know, uh, every day. But I, I think that's a, that's a concern too. You know, when he gets behind these candidates, he helps them win primaries. He needs to stick with it through the general, just like everybody else is doing. So I, I failed as a, as a host. I'm uh, sad to announce to you, Sarah has been ready to join us now for several minutes and I didn't see the message. So Sarah, please, Join us for some discussion of politics before we switch to Mar-a-Lago because we want to get an explainer on uh, what's happened with Mar-a-Lago. Um, 
she. I'm here. I think you can hear me. You just can't see me. We can hear you. Are you? Oh, there we go. No, I just that Ryan has to actually turn on my camera for me. I don't have that kind of power. I haven't been given that that executive privilege, if you will. Well, thank you for for joining us early. You must be. I I I don't want to jinx it, but you must be uh, a master mother if you got Nate down to bed early (laughs) in addition to allow you to join us for some politics talk first. It took two brownies, but I did it. Yeah. That's usually what works. Give them a ton of sugar right before they go to bed. I mean, I guess if you time it right, then they have the sugar crash. (laughs) Do you know that whole sugar thing's been totally debunked? At least I've like read a thing about Adam Grant debunked by the academics thing. by academics yeah. who uh, don't have kids. Is yeah, that who it's been exactly. debunked by? Because yeah. I can tell you it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sarah, you've been listening. You've been listening to this conversation. David has given us the strongest argument possible that you know really all of this talk about Republicans struggling, underperforming is is bunk. It's you know the product of influencers like Michael Barbaro, um, the New York Times, liberal media bias. Where do you uh, where do you fall on this? Uh, Far be it for me to ever disagree with Kochel on anything ever, um, except his snowboarding skills. They're they're iffy. Um, But (laughs) uh, so, look, there's a ton of truth to everything he's been saying. And I think it's a case that is really worth making right now, because this is the problem with sort of our current media cycle. There's every incentive to keep moving from extreme to extreme, because then people have to tune in and, you know, people love the hot takes. So that part of everything Kochel said, I 100 percent agree with and sign my name to. However. Um, and, and this isn't even disagreeing with you really, but like there has been a vibe shift as, uh, mm-hmm. you acknowledged yep. and that vibe shift is particularly unusual because while normally you see partisan consolidation in and around labor day before an election, meaning that people come home to roost, right? Democrats will come back to Democrats. Republicans will come back to De- uh, Republicans and you'll see those races tighten to some extent that have been really untight. Um, you know, basically if you predict a tight race two years earlier and then all of a sudden it doesn't look tight, you'll bet that it's gonna get tight around Labor Day. Um, here what we're seeing is a little weird historically because the party out of power would normally start to, like, yeah, some of those tight races would tighten, but also overall you'd see a shift towards Republicans. Um, because they're the party out of power and because of the historically low approval ratings and all of that. But we're seeing the opposite. The Democrats are actually seeing that shift, even if it's, I agree with Kochel, smaller than the punditry wants to say that it is. Yep, it's small, but it's the opposite shift of what we would expect right now. And that's the part that I'm sort of, you know, really paying attention to. And to 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 uh, to bolster that point, Look at the special elections, right? These have been good indications of where things are headed in years past. And they're pretty, they're sending a pretty clear signal here, right? Four out of five of these competitive races, Democrats have overperformed. The other one was Alaska, which is, you know, as ranked choice, there are all sorts of sort of oddities there. We can't really draw, draw conclusions there. But in the other ones, Democrats are overperforming and in some cases overperforming yeah. in a pretty significant way. Does that does that not matter, David, or or yeah. does it matter? No, Should Republicans be sitting up straighter? 
it matters. It matters, but they're isolated. And once you have all the candidate money coming in, like, for example, the Democrats want the race to be about Trump and abortion. Um, you're going to have a, you know, a couple million dollars spent in every Republican congressional race that's close talking about inflation and the economy. Um, it's just going to be louder. And if you're a cable news addict and you're, all you're watching is Trump and abortion and Mar-a-Lago, yeah, you're going to have an opinion, you know, on your side of that. And, and but 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 when it comes to turning it over to the real voters, um, I'm betting on the wrong track being strong enough that Democrats, some Democrats are going to get fired because people don't think Biden's doing a good job. Uh, they know that Washington is now controlled by the Democrats in the House and the Senate. Uh, Democrats are trying to say, well, not really, because the Supreme Court controls, you know, Republicans control the Supreme Court. So there, there's a pushback there. I just think, I think the fundamentals are still there. There is a vibe shift. The specials do matter, but they, but they are isolated. And I think once you get into this period of time when you're going to have, like I said, a, a couple billion dollars being spent on the issues candidates want to talk about and not what Michael Barbaro wants to talk about, um, I think Republicans are gonna are gonna do better than the current narrative suggests. It, it's not as it's not going to be the red wave we thought, but I don't think it's going to be a ripple either. I actually think we're going to get the House. I can see a scenario where we could get the Senate, but I, I think that's a lot tougher. Uh, more likely, we stand pat uh, and and trade Pennsylvania, maybe for maybe for Georgia or another one. Um, but you know, I, I don't. I, I just think it's, you know, it's going to come down now to the candidates and candidate quality. In the Senate side, McConnell's right. We've got <laughs> some weakness. Yeah. But, but, but in House races, you know, I, I worked a couple of, I worked several primaries this year. I got three or four of mine through. Uh, I lost on a couple. We're, we'll probably lose the Herrera Butler seat up in Washington three uh, because we nominated Joe King, who's completely Joe insane. Yes. Joe Kent. Yeah. <laughs> we, I did. I did something in that race and called him uh, Portland Joe the Bernie Bro because he admitted he voted for Bernie Sanders, and we came close there. But you know, couldn't overcome the the Trump. He's races. a Bernie Bro who more recently has been cozying up to white nationalists and other mm-hmm. alt right uh, yeah. figures. Yeah, we say. not and, and not we ideal. Shouldn't, we shouldn't we shouldn't bury the lead here. We're talking to the Kingslayer right now. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, you, you said you said Joe King, but. Uh, Steve King is no longer in Congress anymore, my, and that is largely due to <laughs> where uh, you know I, I I think on uh, on the House side, you know, we on the Dispatch podcast a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how basically in, in the New York and Florida primaries, most of the normal House candidates won. Laura Loomer did not get very close to, uh, mm-hmm. or I guess she came closer than people thought, but she did not make it over the top. Carl Palladino in New York did not get over the top couple others, Anthony Sabatini in Florida, these are all very online, very Trumpy, very, you know, people that would be handing the seat to the Democrats and, and they did not. Get but it's through. not just if uh, I can just Declan, just to, just to clarify, I mean, I think you're being generous to them by saying that they're very online and very Trumpy. These are crazy people, right? I mean, Laura, yes. just just to be blunt about it, Laura Loomer is nuts. Like she's an insane person. Um, Anthony Sabatini, the same way. Carl Palladino had said things publicly, I believe, praising Adolf Hitler later saying he didn't quite mean what, how it came out. Um, I guess for me, I don't take much comfort in the fact that Republicans have been able to reject 
these people who you know really shouldn't be serious participants in our politics in any case um maybe that's old I'll, maybe that makes me old school um i'll just i'll just tack crazy. onto this uh, yes they are i'll tack onto this i'm not sure i could have got steve king this cycle had we tried it he would have he would have won the primary i th- i think well his part of his problem was trump didn't like him and didn't endorse him and had trump endorsed him we probably wouldn't have won that primary but he stayed out. And, and Trump's been him. a lot more bold with his endorsements out of office yes. than he was when he was in office. And I think there's interesting reasons for that, some of which yeah. are just the evolution of Donald Trump, for sure. But Trump out of office also doesn't have those guardrails around him, which I know we can argue over how good the guardrails were. were the, was it worth having the guardrails? All of that. But like there were some guardrails and politically people telling him, uh, you know, hey, don't endorse the Steve Kings of the world made a difference in 2018 and 2020 that we're not seeing now. Um, And then a lot more of his endorsements, well, a lot more of his endorsements are winning and losing, interestingly. Like percentage-wise, he has lost more, but he's also been endorsing way weirder people than he had been in 2018 or 2020. It just, it, the whole dynamic has kind of shifted since the Kochel Kingslayer days. (laughs) So let me let me jump in. The Substack is back up. We are getting more people Ooh. joining us because uh, Substack is back. I think they are coming in on the original link. Um, I'm failing further in my duties as as host because I'm I'm letting time slip away. We will plan to go a few minutes long because we have uh, a lot more to get to. We have good questions in the queue right now. I want to ask Sarah about Mar-a-Lago. We are going to bring in Adam O'Neill to talk a little bit about. Um, his background and what he wants to do with us at the dispatch, but Kachel and Declan stick around. We're going to get some of these questions quickly as good ones. There's a lot of talk. This is from Jason Godwin. There's a lot of talk about the bad GOP Senate candidates who are the most underrated Republican candidates, even if they don't have a great shot of winning, who, who, who's a good candidate. Who's, who's the best Republican Senate candidate, whether he or she has uh, a chance at winning or not. Wait, how are we defining best though? Because like to me, best would mean best chance of winning uh, or rather overperforming. But what if there's a great candidate perform? That's different than asking who's like a morally great candidate, which isn't really, I don't know, Kachel, I don't want to speak for you, but like, isn't so much our specialty. (laughs) I'm not Jason. I'm not Jason, but I love the question because of the way that I understood it. So the way that I understood it is who's a great candidate makes a great argument, gives good speeches, is the kind of candidate, Republican or Democrat, that you'd want to see succeed because he or she is good. Um, so my first, Tiffany Smiley would be the first one that comes to mind uh, in Washington, Washington State. State. I think she's got a great story. She's well-spoken. I think she's getting you know pinched pretty hard right now on abortion. I think that's going to be tough. Um, but you know, that's, that's another one of those States where they might just decide to fire the incumbent because they're not happy with the direction of the country. Um, in terms, like, <clears throat> I don't think that Herschel Walker is a good candidate. Um, but I think he's got the best chance of flipping a state of anybody. I think the people in Georgia who like him really like him a lot and they don't care that he, you know, isn't super articulate about the air coming from China. 
Um, and I think they may just vote for him because he, you know, brought him national championship. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, we got, you know, there, those are, those are probably my two. The, I think Tiffany Smiley is a fantastic candidate. I think Herschel Walker has a better chance to win than people think, particularly with Kemp going, you know, six or seven over uh, Stacey Abrams. Love that Jason Dave, clarified you, and said that he agreed with Steve, uh, how Steve defined his question. Um, but Jason, I David, disagree you would with know how better you defined than, your question. <laughs> better than, uh, than I would being in Colorado where you are right now. But what do you, what do you make of Joe O'Day there? I mean, that's preempting another question we got in the queue here from uh, Jonathan. So, but, you know, he's he's seems to me to be incredibly well suited to the state. We've actually had our reporter, Audrey Falberg was, uh, talking to John Hickenlooper, the Democratic senator from Colorado, um, and asking about the race. And Hickenlooper didn't realize how well he was like, oh, Joe O'Day's pro-choice? I didn't realize. Oh, Joe O'Day is not for Trump? I didn't realize. Like, so caught off right. guard a little bit by how moderate, yeah. how kind of reasonable, you know. He, he would have been my second candidate to mention uh, in terms of candidate quality. Obviously, he had a a very Trumpy opponent in the primary that the Democrats spent a couple million dollars promoting as the true conservative in the race. Um, so that's one where, you know, his just his strength, he does fit the, the state. Um, and he won that that primary fairly convincingly, um, you know, over the over the nefarious work of the Democrats to try to push the Trump candidate. Um, you know, still a tough state. You know, Polis is running very strong. Um, I think the real clear politics on that is probably Bennett plus seven or eight. Um, it would take a real wave to get O'Day over the top, but yeah, you couldn't really match a candidate much better with the state. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to vote for I him. Have an, I have an unpopular pick. Uh, I think the answer to Jason's question is Blake Masters in Arizona. Knew you were going to say and that. I, yeah, you did. Um, but I define Jason's question a little differently. So I think inherent in Jason's question is what Steve and Jason define as their own Republican party and therefore a candidate who is good for their party, which no longer exists. But uh, if you take the question as a campaign operative, um, and I think that Blake Masters is the best candidate this cycle to articulate what the new Republican party stands for, which is a much more working class multiracial, um, you know, non-college educated electorate. And that I don't know of another candidate this cycle, Kachel, I'm curious if you disagree based on that definition, that is as good at that message and cohesively so. Like his message at events plus his message in his ads are all sort of like this cohesive whole that I think is working very well. He may not win, um, Arizona is a tough state, right? It's just, it's always going to be a tough state, but I don't know. I think he's got a good shot. The incumbent doesn't have that sort of fervent uh, following that I think, for instance, Warnock has in Georgia. I think in Georgia, to your point, Kochel, you actually have two pretty pumped electorates, the people who really like Warnock and the people who really like Walker. In Arizona, you're going to have people who, you know, vote for Mark Kelly, but aren't super pumped about him and may not really know anything about him. Um, low, relatively low name ID in the state where he's an incumbent. Astronaut. That's all you need to know. Astronaut. Right. <laughs> um, <been> space. <laughs> I mean, that makes him very cool in my book, FYI. Uh, and then Blake Masters, who 
I think certainly has the like buzz behind him. Jason, welcome to my world. Sarah takes your question, tells you you don't know what you mean by asking it, and then answers it the way she wants to. It's yeah. perfect. It's perfect. Actually, it's a pretty good answer. I, 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 I have to acknowledge begrudgingly. Um, let me I, I don't another... disagree with that at all. Yeah, he's the most articulate defender of the of the new kind of Trump styled Republican Party. And putting I think policy right. meat on the bones of bones that had yeah. no meat on them before, really. Can we can we, makes it sound can we point out though that that this guy who is a very wealthy tech executive funded by Peter Thiel <laughs> is there there's an irony built into him being the the great spokesman for the 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 blue collar uh I mean come on the the former president Granted. is a billionaire real estate yeah. developer yeah. and he was the every voice political of the movement man. needs a class trader Exactly, <laughs> you, but you 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 think you think Masters is better equipped to to give that message than JD Vance is? He hasn't had the same issues with the you know dramatic black and back and forth. Uh, significantly better right now, which is so strange because for all the reasons Steve just explained, JD Vance on paper is the way better candidate to put uh, policy meat on those bones, to give that message, to cut those ads. He should feel it, um, and yet I haven't seen any of that from him i think because he how do i phrase i don't know uh i think jd vance is a little too worried about his own evolution <laughs> and blake masters for better or worse gets to mostly start from a blank slate and um, I, I just think he's been far better at making it sound like a coherent political philosophy which by the way that wasn't meant to be i, I think it is a coherent political philosophy that hasn't been articulated before now and so he doesn't have a lot of giants to stand on he's he's you know having to build it himself so Jason um, is going to be joined by Brian Boyce, who is another voice living in my head as he asks this question. How would Mr. Kochel advise other candidates trying to negotiate the support for the big lie and voters like me that think genuflecting before the big lie is disqualifying? A brilliant question. Eager to hear your answer, Mr. Kochel. <laughs> well, I will first of all say that every member of the federal delegation in Iowa voted to certify the election, and I worked very hard on that. Um, <clears throat> my advice is don't talk about the election. Say it's, it's not about the past, it's about the future. Um, I, I, I know that there's a constituency for it that begs for it, that wants it, that goes to the Trump rallies, and that supports some of these, you know, nuttier candidates in primaries. I, I don't think it's a Obviously, I think it's a terrible issue in the larger voter world. <clears throat> and all you have to do is say, you know, elections are never about the past. They're always about the future. We're going to do our very best to deliver a free, fair election with integrity. I trust the members of my state legislature to, you know, to, to get it right and to, to make sure we uphold our election integrity and the elections about the future, just get off of it, get off of it. There's no, nothing to be gained. You got all those voters already. You don't, you, you need more of the voters who think it's all insane or who don't, or who haven't watched 2000 mules or, or, or don't care. Like who, who, you Which know, is the pay attention to this stuff a few hours a, yeah. a week. Seven, to, independents are yeah. like seven to two. You yes. know, believing that the election was fair and that Joe Biden won the election, believing in reality. 
Yes. Well, you see Correct. that you see that backed up. <laughs> Dr. Oz today came out and said that he if he were in the Senate in January 2021, yeah. he would have voted to certify the election. I think that was a really telling sign that that's mm-hmm. where, you know, he's about in in one of the toughest races in the country, one of the most swingy states. Um, and that's what he he said. He wouldn't impeach Trump uh, after the fact for it, but he would I just wanna, vote to certify the election. I just want to point out this is the same guy who says that what his campaign spokesperson says is their own business and he can't like say one way or the other on that. So, like, let's give it a few days, Declan. <laughs> yeah, and we'll see how Trump reacts you, to that. Right. I mean, yeah, I expect, Mike, you can never go a, wrong taking Dr. Oz at his word. Might catch a truth thread on that one. You never That's know. Right. A truth, a truth thread. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you for spending some time with us. We appreciate your expertise as always. Um, appreciate Bye, you hanging out. Declan, thank, thank you, you for, for hanging. Thanks for having me, guys. Spend, uh, appreciate it. I will spend uh, a few minutes with Sarah here because I want to understand what's happening with the Mar-a-Lago documents and the past 48 hours and the special master and the judge weighing in when she said she may or may not have actually jurisdiction to weigh in. What what should we think about what's happened over the past 36 hours, Sarah? Okay, I'm going to try to make this not an AO episode. So, Steve, I need you. I'm not a lawyer. I I went to orientation (laughs) at law school and then I got up and walked out because I didn't want to be a lawyer. So give it to me in your best non-lawyer explanation, please. Okay. So I feel like the reaction universally to the judge's opinion, which was roughly 24 pages, um, you know, if you were just like to Google special master and then like look for opinion or editorial pages is all, this is totally bonkers. It's lawless and all of this. I want to try to put that in some context, which is, I think her opinion is incorrect on the law. I think it is too simplistic on several points. Um, I think she made some errors along the way in terms of process that got us here. Um, And I think that the whole like, it's lawless and insane and all of that is overblown. There's incorrect district court decisions all the time and no one calls those lawless. this is, you know, it's not written in crayon. She's a real lawyer with a real legal background uh, who I think, you know, found herself in some slightly uncharted territory. And I don't mean because of Trump or uh, the Mar-a-Lago stuff, but when you have a criminal investigation being overseen by one judge and one of the parties who has not been indicted goes and files a civil suit that's actually allowed, but it makes this all very messy. And it's like, that's where the, like, does she even have jurisdiction? So can I pause you there? This? Can I yeah. pause you there? What happened? Like, give it, like, why, why is she weighing in at all? Who's yeah, doing so, what? I mean, like, how did we get here? Okay. So the Judge Reinhardt, the federal magistrate judge who signed off on the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago, also signed off on the concept of DOJ using a filter team Uh, to determine, basically, you have one set of investigators look at the, I think it was 11,000 documents, to put them into groups, right? Uh, Documents that are covered by attorney-client privilege, documents that are purely personal, you know, your dental x-rays, that doesn't need to go to the investigators. They don't want that. They don't care. Uh, And then all of the other documents. Once they're done with that, the, all the other documents, the ones that can go to the investigative team, now go to a totally separate group of lawyers 
Um, so let's call that 10,500 documents or something like that. That's what the magistrate judge signed off on. He is overseeing the criminal investigation of this process, basically. What the Trump team did was sort of come out right away and say they wanted a special master, but they didn't do anything legally What's about a that. What's special master? That's a, a special so, master. As, as somebody somebody yeah. said to me yeah. today, like, that sounds like something from Kung Fu Panda. What is it a is. special master? Um, I think that was Master no, a, Shifu, right? Not a special a, it's master. A, it's a panda. That's what it is. Uh, so a special counsel is an outside person picked by the Department of Justice. A special master is an outside person picked by the judge in a judicial process. The special master can do anything, but most of the time, the special master is there to serve the same purpose as the filter team, go through all the documents that were seized and put them into these categories. Um, there's a reason that the Department of Justice in some cases wants a special master because then they're not responsible for any screw ups that happen in that filter team. For instance, here, the Trump team didn't actually legally ask for a special master for two weeks. At that point, the judge says, well, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I might appoint a special master. Let's do this briefing. Oh, yeah, that, that's nice. Yep, I'm still leaning towards the special master. That takes a whole additional nine days until we get to her final order. In that three-week period, so the two weeks it took the Trump team to ask, an additional nine days for the judge to act, DOJ kept doing what they were doing because they had to sign which off is going through the documents. judge. Yeah, which is going through the documents. Because they couldn't <laughs> so the stop. the filter team, well, they yeah. could. They could have. Um, the judge could have ordered them to stop. Or DOJ could have said, um, Your Honor, you seem to say that you're leaning towards the special master, but you haven't told us to stop reviewing documents. Would you like to order us to stop reviewing the documents pending your final order? They didn't do that. And there are going to be some problems with that because uh, the filter team finished, gave the documents over to the investigative team. If this um, order holds, and for instance, the special master reviews for executive privilege and there's thousands of documents that are deemed to fall under executive privilege that the investigative team can't read and yada yada all things that i don't think will happen by the way but if that were to happen there's a real chance that the entire doj investigative team who has reviewed those documents has to be taken off the case they're out they're out because they've been tainted right now if you look at the judge's opinion or follow this way too closely DOJ acknowledged that there were two instances where privileged documents did make it through the filter team. The investigative team saw it, flagged it, gave it back to the filter team. And the filter team was like, oops, our bad. Those are privileged. We don't know what's happened to the lawyers or invest. We don't know who saw it on the investigative team or whether those people have been walled off in any way, given that they saw tainted material, or if it was simply determined that it was irrelevant, frankly, to the overall investigation. You know, it was attorney-client privileged about his dental records, and that's just not what they're looking at here. Um, we don't know. But that would be so small, those two pieces of paper, compared to what we're talking about with executive privilege. Okay. But Steve, the most interesting part of this is the executive privilege conversation. Because everyone is you know, and including me to some extent, like, right, I do not think a former executive has executive privilege. I don't think that Trump has standing to contest any of this because they're not his freaking documents. They're not his, right. 
They're not his. But I do want to be clear that like, that's my opinion. It is not fact. It has never been decided whether a former executive can assert executive privilege. And in fact, you have Justice Kavanaugh writing a separate um, concurrence in one of those emergency docket cases um, about the January 6th committee, where he says, of course, a former executive has some amount of executive privilege or else executive privilege doesn't mean anything. The purpose of executive privilege is to allow for candid conversations with the president, something we want to encourage. And if it disappeared, you know, if your conversation on January 19th with the president was then no longer uh, protected on January 22nd, that wouldn't be much of an executive privilege. So that, to be clear, that's like a very, very smart and person who actually will have say over this, saying that there's some privilege that exists after you leave the White House. Two things, though. One, who gets to assert that privilege? Kavanaugh was simply saying that the former executive has some privilege, but that's different than whether the former executive gets to be the one to, to assert the privilege. Can only the current executive assert it? Can only the current executive waive it? Things like that. That's an interesting question that hasn't been answered. And no, the Nixon cases don't really answer this, despite what everyone's going to tell you. There's some flim flamming around and dicta, but frankly, the whole situation is so different than what we have here. And it's 50 freaking years ago. I throw the whole thing out. Uh, we haven't had, but we haven't, I mean, if you look at the Presidential Records Act, we haven't had to have this discussion because every other president has understood what was at stake and how to act. And this immediate past president did not. And the Presidential Records Act is a post-Nixon law. Correct. So we also haven't litigated any of this under the Presidential Records Act, which the Supreme Court is very clear about one thing. When the president acts in conjunction with Congress, that is right. like an uber president. You're very powerful. Powers. If the yep. president yeah, acts uh, you know, orthogonal to Congress, he's at his weakest. If Congress just hasn't spoken to it, then that's what most of these cases are, frankly. Uh, so anyway, that's all to say. The executive privilege thing is a weird question. And in that sense, her opinion isn't lawless. It's saying, this question hasn't been answered. And DOJ just barreled right ahead and said there was no question here at all. That's not true. The problem that I have with her opinion is that Donald Trump doesn't get to be the one to raise it. Right, right, right. And who would raise it if Donald Trump is not the person to raise it? That's the problem, right? It would have to be the current executive because current to me- executive, yeah. Yeah, we because it's called executive privilege, we keep conflating it with things like attorney-client privilege or doctor-patient privilege, when in fact, I think of executive privilege far more like a separation of powers issue. Right. Um, and it's a very weak privilege compared to attorney-client privilege. You can overcome attorney-client privilege basically through the crime-fraud exception, showing that your attorney was part of the crime that you committed, helped you in the crime and and you know in some way. Um, but otherwise, it's really hard to overcome attorney-client. That might be a fitting privilege. example if I can just. I mean, <laughs> theoretically, theoretically. But executive privilege is very, very weak. Honestly, you come up with any good reason, like Congress wants to legislate on that. Oh, well, then don't worry about executive privilege. We're looking into a crime. Oh, yeah, don't worry about executive privilege. And so, you know, for like Twitter lawyers, like it's not what people are thinking it is to begin with. Um, and as I said, it, it's executive privilege. And so to me, because I think it's a separation of powers tool, it is owned by the executive branch. And so the only person who can assert that privilege is the head of the executive branch 
only the president, so no one else within the executive branch, and certainly not a former president, even if the pre- if the privilege may be from that president, if that makes sense. It may be President Trump's privilege, but because it is a separation of powers tool, he's not a branch he right now. Assert it. Yeah, you can't be the one to assert it. Excellent. All right. This did, is that, great. Was that, did that make sense? No, it was very good. Very clear. <laughs> uh, very helpful. Uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate right. you getting Nate down early. We appreciate you joining us for politics. Appreciate this explainer. And we are now going to bring in Adam. And you are welcome to go resume the rest of your night. Thanks, Sarah. Adam. <laughs> Steve, hello. How are you? Yeah, a little tired, but can't complain. Glad, glad to have you. Um, for those of you who are, we have some people who are still here. We have others who will uh, watch or listen to this uh, recorded tomorrow or in the coming days. Uh, but one of the parts of the conversation I was most excited to have was this conversation with Adam. We are thrilled to have Adam as our executive editor. He's been with us now for three months and uh, two days. Not that I'm counting. Three weeks. Three weeks. Three, I mean, three weeks and two days. Yeah. Um, very happy to have you. Um, Adam came to us from the Wall Street Journal, and he moved back to the United States, back to Washington from Europe, where you had been for six years, if I'm not mistaken. What were you doing in Europe in the first place? And what were you doing in Europe for the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, I, uh, I started at the Wall Street Journal editorial page about six years, uh, six, six and a half years ago. And I was in New York for a couple of years as an editor. And then uh, in 2018, I moved to Europe to cover foreign policy for the editorial page. So not just Europe, but foreign policy in general. But I was based out of London uh, for a while. And then by the time I left, I was uh, living in Brussels, writing about, <clears throat> obviously, there's quite a bit going on in Europe these days. Uh, so it was a uh, it was an exciting time and you know a lot of a lot of news to 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 find everywhere and a lot of interest there but uh this uh, interesting opportunity came along and uh i'm glad to be back in the united states i uh, i kind of you know i sometimes miss some of the food uh that i was able to get over there as as i know you uh you do as well from your time uh, around the continent but um but that's, and we had a good we had a good lunch together at one of my favorite restaurants in Madrid, this is actually how we met, What whatever this was, four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that, too, because when I emailed you and I mentioned, I was like, oh, hey, Steve, you you might have remembered we had lunch. And not only did you remember that we had lunch, you remembered the type of wine that we drank. And uh, I'm not quite the uh, wine aficionado as you are. I, mean, <laughs> I, I knew I liked the wine. I thought it was delicious, but uh, I, I couldn't tell you what it was. or what Well, you- I mean, we don't often have wine at lunch here in the United States, but in Spain, it was just sort of what you do. I did get, as an aside, I'll take that opening that you just provided. As an aside, I understand that we got some questions about uh, what wine I was drinking. We ought to really make this part of Dispatch Live. Um, this is the San Roman 2017 Spanish Toro wine, big, bold, love it. Um, That's pretty terrific. So um, when you were at the journal and based in Europe, um, you wrote a lot of the unsigned editorials on national security, foreign policy. What were the areas that you were particularly interested in? What did you do most of your writing on? And maybe I think it would be uh, useful for you to explain just how much reporting you did. I think some people read the Wall Street Journal editorial page and think these are a bunch of people with opinions. But you spent a good bit of your time, maybe the majority of your time, doing the reporting, 
calling people, talking to government officials, talking to experts, what have you. What was that process like? Yeah, well, you know, when I first started at the journal back in when I was 23 years old, you know, I spent most basically all of my 20s there. Uh, a, a senior guy is very well accomplished, you know, won a Pulitzer Prize when uh, he was pretty young. And he uh, he told me, he said, I asked him for advice on how to do well at the journal. And he said, just remember, no one cares what your opinion is. And I thought this was an interesting thing to say to someone getting hired at the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal, right? And, uh, and I, I haven't been that direct with our reporters here yet, but I'm trying to find a nicer way to uh, impart that uh, upon them. That, you can be that direct. Let's We, we encourage <laughs> that kind of straightforward talk. Right. And and I really made that as uh, the uh, the guiding point. And, you know, I had been reporting before. I worked at Real Clear Politics. I was briefly a Vatican reporter before that as well. And um, out of Europe, one thing, the first couple of years that I was there, one thing I was trying to do was find examples of things that had happened in Europe that were possibly going to happen in the United States. This was when Bernie Sanders was getting ready to run in 2020. Uh, when Elizabeth Warren was talking about wealth taxes, I had sources in Sweden who could point me to studies and stories about what happened when they imposed wealth taxes in different parts of Europe. So I spent a lot of time working on that and trying to shatter some of the myths about Europe, because I know a lot of young socialists are very excited about uh, you know, Swedish socialism. And I spent a lot of time in the Nordic countries and they're extremely capitalistic. And this year in particular, earlier this year, I spent a few months in Warsaw. And previously I had been to Ukraine. I had traveled out to Mariupol, not obviously not since the war began, but a few years ago. And I'd gotten to know Ukraine quite well. And that's where I focused a lot of my attention this year, not just reporting on what was happening in Ukraine, talking to my sources on the ground there, but also talking about how it was affecting the rest of the continent. I went to Vilnius in Lithuania, interviewed the political leadership there and put together a story about how they saw it. And that was a country that before we realized how incompetent the Russian military was, there was real conversations about them being next. Next. Or, yes, or exactly. Being Poland and, or, the, or Poland being next and talking about how the Poles viewed it. And uh, when Sweden and NATO joined Finland or attempted to join Sweden, and Finland attempted to join NATO, I went over there and spoke to politicians throughout the, both of those countries to understand how they had changed so quickly. And um, so these are sort of specific issues to that. And I have strong opinions about foreign policy and how to cover it. But of course, I was attending journal editorial board meetings twice a week for six years. And or we started to do them twice a week, but I, I had attended, you know, hundreds of hundreds of those meetings over the years, and I'd kept a close eye on domestic politics. I'd been reading the Morning Dispatch. I'd been one of the people to give out the uh, email to when I think it was just a Gmail account when you guys were starting to put together. I'd I'd stayed interested, and it's exciting, especially with 2024 coming up. Uh, I don't know if I I'm exciting it or I'm filled with dread, but I'm it's it's going to be an interesting time for me. I mean, it's both, right? Like, (laughs) let's be honest. Let's be honest. And uh, and and it's it's uh, it's it's been quite a joy to get back into my roots of focusing on the U.S. as well, but also keeping that international perspective. And that's something I think the dispatch has done well. And you and I have had long conversations about things to change, things to improve, things to do more of, things to de-emphasize. Uh, but I really want to keep the spirit of what everyone has been doing here, but do it in a bigger way. Yeah. Get more people. Get well said. Produce, produce more. Uh, more content. Uh, I almost hate to say content, but it really is uh, across different platforms. Um, 
I worked for a, a very old newspaper, but I'm still very interested in the digital transformation as we've talked, we've spent hours and hours talking about. And that's uh that's sort of where I'm I'm trying to take it. And I guess one one thing I would want to add to that is my my goal is not to I sort of alluded to this, but my goal is not to turn the dispatch into something or try to replicate something else because I really think something unique is being built here. And uh I have some skills that can help build that and work with you guys and, and this great team we've put together and we'll watch it grow and, uh, and build something that had, that hadn't quite existed before, not trying to recreate another wall street journal or a New York times or whatever blog or political or whatever it is, but that someone maybe down the road will try to copy what we're doing because it's yeah. a, a model, a model for what, what's out. Yeah, there. So I, I love that. I mean, this is, you, you all can probably understand why I was so enthusiastic about Adam when, when, uh, when I first spoke to him about this, he, he sent me a note, we had uh, a quick email exchange and then I, I agreed to jump on a call. He was in Europe at the time. And the purpose of the call was just to tell him, Hey, we've got a process for any interviewing for this position I'm happy to put you in the process. It was supposed to be a five minute call, but Adam and I ended up talking, I don't know, for an hour and a half or something like that. And, and what, what I think, um, what I think is, is sort of interesting about what we're doing. And, and I apologize in advance that we're going to talk a little bit about the dispatch and, and where we're going and how we approach this. But you know, I think a lot of people who read um, editorials, in-house editorials at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, elsewhere, um, or, or, or spend time on the op-ed pages. Assume that it is, you know, basically just opinion-mongering. And unfortunately, in my view, too much of what opinion journalism has become is just that. It's somebody who has an opinion about something or somebody who might not have an opinion about something, but knows because she or he has to file a column tomorrow with a strong opinion about something that they develop an opinion just for the sake of having an opinion to write the piece. We do this backwards. We do this the other way, which is we do the reporting. We talk to as many people as we can. This is true of our commentary people. This is true of our reporters. We're doing reporting. We're doing research. Um, and then we are happy to say, hey, we think these this argument is good. We think this argument is bad. We think the people advancing this particular case are serious and smart and should be listened to. And these people are full of it. We're fine to do that, but we do the homework first. I think the journal has a long tradition of doing this on the editorial page. The impressive amount of reporting that the journal does for its editorials, um, I think, is giving you kind of the training to understand exactly how we're coming at this. But having said that, I mean, we're this, we're this, we think we're this unique combination of that kind of old school reporting um, and, and, you know, adherence to traditional journalistic um, rules and standards, but also doing it in a very different way. I mean, obviously our, our distribution mechanisms are different. The fact that we're, we still are newsletter first, we make no apology, apologies about the fact that we're newsletters. First, um, we think we can write the newsletters in a you know slightly less formal and stilted way. Nobody's going to mistake what we're sending in the morning dispatch with the kind of very formal New York Times style or Associated Press style. Um, so you come in, you've got 
now we've got this this editorial side team, which is 20 plus strong, an incredible group of, of young reporters, really terrific group of pretty senior editors who have done this before. Um, and you come in and you're sort of dropped in the middle of it. What did you do? I think it's potentially interesting for people who are, are with us. What did you do to get acclimated? You moved back to the United States. That's been a, a big change. But then how did you approach your job here as executive editor? I mean, you're basically running the editorial side. Yeah, well, I will say I've lived in a few different countries in Europe over my time there, and moving to the U.S. was definitely a lot easier than moving to Poland or uh, or uh, or Rome was, you know, despite enjoying that. But and and to to answer your question by bridging back to what you were saying before, um, I really have a a lot of a, nothing but respect and admiration for the people I work for at the Journal, and like I said, I that's basically where I spent my twenties. Uh, was was working there, and uh, and it, it wasn't just learning to type to write editorials. It was changing how you think and how you approach stories, and having an analytical framework, and not just how you write, but how you interview people. And my goal here is not to recreate what we're doing there, but it is to to bring some of those mind, some of that mindset, and some of yeah. those practices. You know, I hate to use these buzzwords, but. The, the, the ways of thinking onto to young reporters who maybe are straight out of college or have been doing this for a year and sort of share some of that knowledge. But, and this is getting, getting to your question, the first two weeks were figuring out how things work here because I don't think you want to come in with a wrecking ball, right, and just say, well, we used to do it this way, you know, at this newspaper that existed for 140 years or whatever it is, and that's how you should do it at this three-year-old startup media publication. So I spent time interviewing just about everybody, um, whether it was in the interview process when I was initially interviewing, but really on the ground here in DC or calling not just our staff writers, but also people writing newsletters, getting to meet them. And I, I met almost everybody. There's still a couple of people, you know, Starwalt's on his book tour. So we're, we're still planning, you know, to get lunch and talk about it, but basically just he's a big star. He's a big star, Adam. He's hard to get, you know, he's hard to pin down. Yeah, but but getting a getting a sense from the most junior editor who just got hired out of college a couple months ago up to talking to you and Jonah, right? And some of the people like Declan who have been here since the very beginning. And I have to say I'm quite impressed with how open everybody is, right? Uh it's uh it's not it's not that uh, everyone is just so ready and ready and uh, eager to pour out their hatred of this place, but rather <laughs> the, to speak frankly and say, well, this, uh, this we could do more efficiently, right? These meetings maybe could be more useful this way. Uh, it would be helpful if we did this in the editing process. And I hope if you're a listener and you somehow still manage to stick around for this part uh, and you're really interested in, in the product, my hope is that you don't really notice a, a huge difference. It's not going to be that suddenly we're adopting all these new positions, right? Or we're we're writing about these things that we we didn't care about before, something like that. But more that you might just notice that uh, the the writing is sharper. The there are more scoops. There's more stuff for you to read, right? And uh, whatever the your preferred way of consuming the dispatch, hopefully across time and this is a this is going to be a long project as we've talked about before i'm in this for the long haul i see uh I, I think about things not just what can we do really quickly to get a ton of subscribers in six months but what is this place going to look like in five years or a decade and uh hopefully all the people here and if you're listening to this you are uh one of the the hardcore members uh, an interested party 
I hope uh, you'll start to notice things for the better. And if not, it's Adam at the dispatch.com. Tell me things <laughs> you don't like. Uh, I have to say my, my, uh, my email now that it's a fresh email after the other one, building up all the, the spam and the PR people, it's still pretty clean. So now's the time to get an email into me. Send it uh, in. I'm inundated. Send it in. We try to be responsive. I mean, you know, when, when we, you know, we, we were very excited that Adam said to, to, to me and to, to Jonah, um, hey, I'd like to come, I'd like to start, and I'd like to spend two weeks just talking to everybody. Let me just get a sense of what's going on. And we, as we've done this before, but we we encourage the staff, be open, be critical, tell Adam what's working and what's not. The only way we're going to get better is if you're honest and open about it. Um, so we encouraged people to 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 offer some some critiques of how things are run. And, and the managers, I think in my email, uh, to the staff, I said, please be especially critical of Jonah. Um, I I'm not sure everybody really took me up on that. I might have to, we might have to go back to the well on that. I think they were probably too, too kind to Jonah. Um, we'll, we'll try that again, but I've got, we have some questions here, um, for you. Um, I'm told by Ryan, our producer that we still have uh, many, many hundred people watching, I think probably because we started late. So you all know that we're, we're usually pretty, pretty uh, hardcore sticklers about stopping this thing in an hour. We're going to go a little bit longer because I'd like to get these questions in to Adam. If you have other questions broadly about the dispatch, some of the things that we announced in the morning dispatch today, uh, happy to answer questions, elaborate on that. And we'll share a couple of things that um, are not yet public, but will be public by the end of the week. We uh, are happy to share that that kind of stuff uh, with you here a little early. Um, so question for you, Adam, which Premier League team did you follow? Did you follow a Premier League team? Yeah, I remember being lectured uh, by my, my former editor when I told him I wasn't interested in football. Uh, and he said, we sent you there. You have to embrace the culture. So um, I, uh, I went with Manchester United because I had some cousins who who lived there. But I did not really. I don't even know how they're doing it. Right. Really back on. Recently. Ah, great. Cristiano Ronaldo is trying to get out of there. And he's trying to get out of there for a reason. And my team, Atletico Madrid and La Liga in Spain, didn't even want Cristiano Ronaldo, um, in part because he was at Real Madrid. Okay. Another question. Connie Sanchez. Adam. Tell us why you wanted to be part of the dispatch. Yeah, well, that probably goes back to that lunch you and I had a few years ago. And I remember it's because I had just arrived in Europe a few months before that. And I, you know, I had con contractual the dispatch didn't exist at this point, right? So you yeah. and I had this lunch, and I was telling you theoretically, this is what we'd like the dispatch to be. Yeah. And I remember you kind of alluding to like, well, if this doesn't work out, you know, maybe that's it for me in journalism, you know, and I don't know if I believe that, right. I don't know if you believe that, but you kind of, you, you had alluded to that, but it was just, I remember it was very exciting, uh, just kind of talking through it and talking about what I was doing and, you know, what you had done in your career. And, uh, so for me, the, that's where the interest really came from is, uh, like, like I said, and I can't say it enough. I really, uh, I love the journal, all the people I worked with. I had a great time there you know, changed my life. Um, and uh, I, if this didn't work out, I could have kept working there for another 20 years. It would have been fine. But the the appeal of of leaving and coming here was building something new. 
uh, I've always had the bit of an entrepreneurial itch and um, not quite. And now I kind of get to scratch that, but without risking my finances and my life, like you guys did three years ago. Uh, so, uh, so it's, it's a little, a little bit less of a, a risk, but um, I, I don't even think about it that way just because I, I think you guys have, have kind of showed that this can work. And, and the question is whether we can really take it to the next level and, and enter that top tier of big publications that, move things around and uh a lot of people want to read and need to read so i guess that's that that's to me is maybe i guess i'm a bit of a gambler uh that's that's the uh the reason well i was just just to clarify i mean uh, there's a long long lunch that we had a good lunch that we had i was totally serious about if this didn't work if the dispatch didn't work i was done with journalism i had had job offers the weekly standard uh was shuttered in december of 2018 I think we had lunch that following spring. Jonah and I had been out trying to raise some money to get this thing started. I mean, I believe in what we're doing. I didn't want to do anything else. I had I had other job opportunities, writing for other magazines, for doing other things. This was what I wanted to do. And, and I think my thought was, let's give this a shot. Hopefully there's an audience for the kind of journalism that we want to do, which is, you know, we think smart, serious, thoughtful, reported fact-based and if there's an audience for that great the thing will succeed if there's not an audience for that i don't want to be doing it i don't want to be in journalism because i'm not i've never been an opinion monger i don't want to do hot takes i've never wanted to do hot takes it's not at all what we're doing here um so pretty pretty gratifying that that this has worked the way that it has and i I probably would have been out if if it hadn't worked i would i don't know what i'd be doing but i'd be doing something else so uh messages from from ryan brown our producer folks are really liking adam's beard oh that's a surprise so there you there you have it um some more more questions sean bigler dispatch radam welcome and what do you expect to bring or change and improve at the dispatch. Right. Well, uh, this is kind of the boring journalism nuts and bolts, right? But just uh, without getting into too much detail, just the way that the editing process works, we've got great editors, but I think as we've said, it was a bit of an ad hoc process getting stuff out. So sort of formalizing how we do that, how we how we check the pieces, make sure everything is clean and make sure that we can uh, get push our reporters when when they need to do more reporting and make sure that they have time. Um, and that's, a I should say, that's also another reason I came here is there wasn't a rush. Our, our goal is not to just be the latest up to the minute right. uh, scoop for the, uh, the the lobbyists on Capitol Hill, right? And that that has its value. And I have a lot of respect for the journalists who can do that. But I think that's a uh, if I could sum it up, the, the goal is you'll have more pieces that you'll want to read in six months, whether it's that definitive profile of whoever it is uh, that's important on the campaign trail or whoever is this important bureaucrat or whether it's a way of explaining policies in a way that will remain relevant or when an issue comes back up again, like let's say the gun control debate starts again, that classic piece that people will want to go to to understand guns in America or if you're understanding tax policy or we have, you know, we have a good piece right now on occupational licensing that I think people will enjoy reading. Um, and uh, which maybe it might not sound like the sexiest thing to some people, but I know some conservatives, they hear that and they're like, oh, occupational licensing, that's a, a favorite topic. So uh, that's 
you know, there's. I'm one, so, I am one of those conservatives. <laughs> yeah. So there's. I mean, I have a. I have a memo which I've gone through with you, Steve. That's probably 20 pages by 20, 25 pages by the end of the audit with little detailed things. But I guess the the big thing would be the end product would be to create these these lasting uh, products for people to or these lasting pieces of journalism in addition to more podcasts some newsletter ideas maybe we'll we'll go into other mediums uh as uh, as time goes on but okay we'll do a, we'll do a couple more quickly here and then we have a request from John Daly to oh. drop the name of a speaker for Naples here um before we make it public i think we can actually do that um did, did Pope Francis confirm yet? Or uh... Pope Francis did not confirm. We've okay. actually sent him an invitation. Okay. Um, so the how how would you? I mean, this is a related question to to Sean's question from Gary. Adam, how do you just define in your own words your job at the dispatch? What are you here to do? Yeah, that's a that that feels like that's a deceptively difficult question, right? Um, I did not. I am not Gary H. Yeah, yeah. it's a pretty. I'm. I'm eager for your answer. It's a pretty good question. Right. Well, it's a. In journalism, what I've I remember when I first started out as a journalist, I tried to make a real detailed schedule of how I wanted to spend all of my days, and that lasted about two weeks of being an intern at Real Clear Politics. Right. So, I can't say that. You know, I'm I'm an engineer, and I'm going to come in here, and my goal is to make sure that the, uh, the I'm a structural engineer, and that the building is sound and it won't collapse, right? So, uh, I could say kind of what I do every day. I wake up, I come to the office, I read news, I email reporters and say, hey, maybe this is a story for us, right? I I edit stories, I have conversations about how we can improve our editing, how reporters can have higher quality of stuff than when they file it to us. Uh, and then it's probably divided between that, which is the short term, just day to day helping run the newsroom in conjunction with you and our other great our managing editor, Rachel and uh, deputy managing editor, Michael. And then there's the, the long term ideas where we sit down and talk through what would be a newsletter that would be helpful to our readers. What would be um, if we get to that point, what kind of videos could we do? What kind of new podcasts would people want? And maybe that's something to email me about when, as, as you guys are readers and things you're, you're getting interested in, but, but yeah, don't want to, to, to sum it up, it would be run running the place, making sure stuff gets published on time and it's up to our standards, which are very, very high. I know Steve has high standards and I do as well. And then looking for once we have that mastered and we're in a routine and that never, that battle never really ends because there's always stuff to edit. There's always people to train and people to bring on thinking about where the next uh, the next horizons that we're, we're looking out toward journalistically. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to be able to talk about that stuff with you. I mean, from my perspective, you know, I, I spend I spend my days so scrambling to to get everything done, to keep up with everything. I, I feel like I'm always behind, but I, I love the long term strategic vision. Like, what are we doing? Why do why do we exist? What are we doing that's different than, you know, other people in our space? are doing and why should people spend their time with us as opposed to spend spending their time elsewhere. I do think uh I'm glad you mentioned Rachel and and Michael. I mean there are our other top two editors. They've basically spent um in Rachel's case three years in Michael's case um almost a year. 
just keeping us going. I mean, this was this has been an ad hoc process. It's um, it's a startup. It's journalism and it's a startup. So there's not a lot of planning. You have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to, to make changes, create systems where no systems exist, um, impose a process where there is no process. And they've been uh, you know, really important to, to getting that work done. And I don't think we'd be uh, close to where we are if, if we hadn't had them doing it. And I, I should add, I, most of the ideas I've come up with so far were not really my ideas. It's just people here saying, oh, it'd be really great if we did our edits this way, but we just don't have a person to coordinate that, right? And right. that's kind of what, what I'm doing is filling those gaps where there were ideas and we just lacked the manpower uh, to, to get it done. Um, and Rachel and Michael, more than anyone, were, were the ones kind of at the center between all these different nodes in the operation, the newsletters, the... The, the news pieces that we're putting out, uh, everything, they were they were kind of the, the linchpin in that and were able to really explain, you know, what works here and what, what can be done more efficiently. So we, we've got several, uh, those of you who read the Morning Dispatch today saw that we have uh, some some good things cooking. We've got an, a new website and a new newsletter distribution mechanism that we hope to have fully implemented at some point in October. We're going to be rolling that out. We're excited about it. We love what Substack has has done for us. Um, it's been a great partnership, but we think we can grow in this way and in some important ways uh, in the coming months and, and years by being out on our own. We have uh, regional events that we are going to announce here in the next uh, week or so. Um, I do think we can give people a heads up that we've got an, uh, a regional event coming up in Nashville. Uh, in a little over two weeks, September 22nd, if I'm not mistaken, I should double, triple check that. We'll send this out in, in the morning dispatch by the end of the week. Um, it's going to basically be a, uh, a, a meetup. David and I will talk to people, meet people. If you're in the Nashville area or somewhere close and you think you can get there, um, we'd love to meet you. We're going to ask dispatch members to bring friends. If you have friends who you think would be interested in, in the dispatch. Welcome to join us. We're going to do it at a place called Party Fowl, which has Nash Nashville hot chicken. Fantastic Nashville hot chicken, I have to say. And then, of course, we'll have more details on Naples. Naples, November 10th through the 13th. Naples, Florida at the Ritz-Carlton, uh, the golf resort at Ritz-Carlton. Basically, what we're doing is um, we are selling tickets at our cost. We're not making any money on this. We're probably actually going to lose a fair amount of money on it. But we wanted to bring people together to have this kind of a big debate after the 2022 midterms because we think there's a lot of important stuff to talk about. Um, we will have a, a, um, a good list of speakers that we are going to roll out here in the next few days. Um, I can say that uh, the first speaker on Friday morning is going to be Trey Gowdy, who's giving a speech um, that I have not yet heard, but several of my friends have heard about politics, principles, and policy. Um, I have one friend who is at Fox News right now, says the best single speech that he's heard in years on these issues. Uh, so we're excited to have Trey Gowdy with us. Um, we are also going to have Arizona Governor Doug Ducey is going to join us in Naples. Uh, he'll be interviewed by David French, and we will talk about uh, what he's done as governor um, what the policy implications are. David's written quite a bit about uh, Governor Ducey and his approach to guns on school choice. Uh, 
So we will go deep on policy and on substance, and then we'll talk a little politics too with Governor Ducey. Um, we have a number of other people to announce and to mention. We're pretty excited about the group that we've got coming to Naples. We'll get the other names out soon, um, but it's going to be a pretty terrific conference. So if you can join us, please uh, please sign up. We will share the sign up sheet in the morning dispatch uh, in the coming days. Probably won't have announcements tomorrow, but toward the end of the week, we'll we'll fill out the schedule a little bit. Um, that's it for me. Adam, any parting thoughts? We've gone way beyond what we usually do. We're usually tight at an hour, uh, but happy to have you with us generally. Happy to have you with us tonight on Dispatch Live. Any parting thoughts? No, I'm, uh, I'm, I enjoyed it. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. And like I said, uh, feel free to reach out to me, uh, anybody, you know, at me on Twitter or send me an email, whatever you want. I uh, want to be uh, open and available to everybody. And thanks for staying on this late with us. So I know it's almost my bedtime. So. Ah, that's good. We will, uh, we appreciate you, Adam. We will, we will rope you in on, on some policy questions and substantive discussions, probably not as easy as this was, um, where you can just talk about what your job is going to be. Uh, but we'll bring you in. We'll bring you back. Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you here next Tuesday, uh, eight o'clock Tuesday night. Good night, everyone.